This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, Today we're going to discuss uh, one of the central questions uh, in the history and contemporary uh, discussion of our democracy, which is the role of free enterprise. Uh, Americans have always been uh, business people, business people of various kinds, and business has always been at the center of American society before there even was a United States. And uh, today we're very fortunate we have with us uh, one of the leading uh, business actors and thinkers uh, of, uh, I would say, the last uh, half century or so. Uh, This is uh, Robert Campbell, who's uh, actually a close friend. I'm very uh, pleased that I I, I get to know and learn from Bob. He's a business leader who has really straddled uh, public and private sectors in the United States for 45 years. He's someone who's been incredibly successful in the business world and brought that success with equal effect into uh, public leadership. Um, Here in in Austin, we're very fortunate that uh, he's not, not only a graduate of the LBJ School of Public Affairs and a Distinguished Alumnus Award winner, uh, but uh, has served as chairman of the board uh, and really left a real imprint on the school. For 39 years, uh, Bob was uh, traveling across the country as uh, and across the world with the global firm Deloitte, where he was a partner, and he led their private, excuse me, their public sector practice advising, uh, working with federal, state, and local leaders, and uh, eventually rose to vice chairman of the firm. Uh, he's now retired from Deloitte, though he seems to be as busy as ever. <laughs> he serves on various corporate and nonprofit boards, runs his own consultancy, and uh, he's on the global uh, executive committee for the East-West Institute, which is one of the most important organizations uh, pursuing and supporting uh, diplomacy in many ways between societies, between non-state actors as well as state actors around the world. Bob, that's a long introduction, but I think you deserve it. Thank you for being here. Uh, You're so thoughtful. And uh, (laughs) congratulations on the uh, podcast series. These are just superb and I think uh, make a real difference for students, uh, your other listeners, and the country. Well, thank you, Bob. Thank you for being a part of this. Um, Before we turn to our discussion with Bob, we have, of course, a poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. What's the title of your poem today? Ambitions and Reality. Let's hear about it. Where have they gone, the open-faced sandwiches of men looking forward with eyes that see the breath of our nation stretch between two great oceans, and the breath of each of us, of each and every American with a dream, every youth with a dream for America? Where have they gone, the mechanics in that poem of Whitman's, the ones that look up at the rising steel bars that become a steel skeleton under the steely glance of the seagulls off the Hudson? Oh, and I have more oddly specific dreams of American enterprise, remembrances and distinctly American ambitions, remembrances of the great railroads across the hinterlands that gave birth to Peoria's, Tucson's, and the great libraries of this nation. I remember the heartbeat of -of turn-of-the-century Chicago exploding along Lake Michigan, and the spirit of its contemporary New York City, whom both welcomed my ancestors from Eastern European persecutions. And to me, American enterprise is the hope and the opportunity that a nation was willing to learn from and the resounding investment in the lives of the Jewish immigrants streaming into the New Yorks, the Chicagos, the Traverse Cities, and the Van Burens that became me. And among these remembrances are the ambitions of Nelson Rockefeller, but the stark reality of Theodore Roosevelt. The ambitions of American enterprise, but the realization of its failures. There's a lot in that poem, Zachary. What, What is it about? 
My poem was really about the promise and the hope that is created by uh, this idea of American enterprise, but also about how we need to learn to, um, to, to, to promote the growth of enterprise, but also to manage it and regulate it and keep it in check. Well, that that seems like a good place to uh, turn to Bob. Please, I mean, I mean, if I could interrupt, Please. I mean, Zachary. I mean, what a uh, provocative and insightful poem. Uh, I've list, listened to some of the other podcasts, and that seems to be a consistent pattern Thank you. for you in the podcast. For me, your poem was timely. Uh, Lauren, I just last week finally went to Hamilton. And, oh, wonderful! Uh, some of the themes in Hamilton yes. certainly are consistent with the themes of your poem. And I would share just on a personal note, uh, given your references to Eastern Europe, probably not widely known, but one of my two grandfathers was a Sephardic Jew from Eastern Europe, from Bulgaria, who came to the U.S. at the turn of the last century. Wow. Wow. So a little, little bit of connections there. <laughs> that's, that's, that's some of what you were referring to from our family and others, right? Uh, the connection between immigration and entrepreneurship, right? So, so Bob, uh, as a starting point, building on Zachary's poem and, and on what many have already heard about your illustrious career, could, could you share some of your experiences uh, in this unique uh, high-level role you've been in at the intersection between enterprise and, and the growth of our democracy? Thank you, Jeremy. While not wanting to appear promotional in any way, uh, I have had the good fortune over my professional career of finding myself on a number of occasions working on significant issues at this intersection of the free enterprise system and democracy. As you know, when I graduated from the Lyndon Johnson School of Public Affairs, where you were so active, had the good fortune of getting into the consulting industry fairly early and spending much of my career there, was able to work with a number of leaders at the federal level of government, state level, local level, as well as in the education sector, and Oh, many of my uh, perspectives that we'll be discussing today are really informed by that range of experience. Probably of particular note relative today, have had several experiences in helping develop and implement government programs that seek to take advantage of commercial capabilities mm-hmm. to realize public policy objectives and in turn have worked on a number of initiatives to bring leading commercial best practice to government. So uh, have, as you said, had the opportunity to straddle those two worlds. Since retiring from Deloitte, have also had the good fortune of gaining a new perspective from work the last seven years in the entrepreneurial and startup world, have served on several boards of startup companies, had have advised a number of startup CEOs, and have been a reasonably active angel investor. And I guess just to reinforce a bit the objectives for today, uh, have found over that last seven years since retiring from uh, Deloitte, just an extraordinary level of innovation, entrepreneurship, 
creativity mm. out in our domestic economy, which yes. has been exciting to be a small part of. Yes. And and so what, what have you seen, Bob, as some of the uh, best ways to bring that together with our democracy? I mean, you referred to this already, but if you could, if you could give us more, more of a sense of how that creativity serves our democracy, too much of the public discussion of business and government often um, points to the conflicts. No, I mean, that's uh, absolutely so. And certainly it is not all perfect. Right. But, but I mean, I would share I'm, I'm a perpetual optimist. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, from my perspective, I see a vibrant free enterprise system and our democracy in the U.S. being absolutely directly and integrally connected and mutually supportive when all is working well. Um, Mm -hmm. I think our free enterprise system operates as well as it does because of the democratic environment in which it's based. And I think our democracy is as strong as it is because of that free enterprise system. Just reaching back to some of the earlier experiences I was describing have had the good fortune of working with leaders and managers in both sectors, the public sector, the private sector, have found extraordinarily talented and hardworking people in both worlds in spite of what may be from time to time perceptions of one world about the other right, world. But right. the talent is widespread. I suppose what has surprised me a bit is the level of misunderstanding from time to time I see between representatives of one sector and yes. and the other. I mean, just a trite example, but in the business community, you hear from time to time leaders asserting, we need to run this uh, government like a business. Yeah, they say uh, that often, yes. <laughs> uh, and I, and I suppose if they mean, and I'm not sure what they mean, if they mean we need to have a data-driven approach to decision-making, if they mean we need to have a disciplined approach to performance measurement and performance management, up to that point, I would probably agree. With, with that said, the government is not a business, and I would assert it's actually much more challenging to effectively manage in the public sector than it is in our commercial sector. We don't have any singular measures of performance like profitability. Right, right. In Washington, some would argue we have a board, but the board has 535 members. <laughs> Everything is done in a, in a fishbowl. and right. it, 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 Very challenging environment. But just to cite that as one example of the opportunities there to kind of increase the understanding on both sides of the public and private sectors around each other. Right. And and one of the areas uh, you've worked on, one of so many, uh, is uh, the federal debt. Uh, you were a major part of the Bipartisan Federal Debt Task Force, and that seems to me to be a perfect example or case study of what you're talking about here, right? Uh, how does How should one think about managing debt, for example, and managing finances with business knowledge in the public sector? Oh, I'm not not sure I was a major part, but I had the good fortune of being a member of the commission and uh, can share a little bit about it. This goes back approximately 10 years ago now, but the 
bipartisan policy center, which was formed by four former Senate majority leaders, two Republican, two Democrat, to take on big, tough policy issues. Yes created a debt task force. It went under the name the uh, Domenici Rivlin Commission for former Senate Finance Chairman Pete Domenici and uh, the first Congressional Budget Office leader, Dr. Alice Rivlin, who sadly, I mean, just to acknowledge it, passed away several weeks ago, but both extraordinary leaders. It was comprised of business leaders, and it was comprised of several former senators, governors, and uh, cabinet members. And it was focusing on this daunting issue of our growing debt and the degree of deficit spending. And certainly, economists would disagree as to precisely what the right uh, metrics and targets should be. But I think there is widespread agreement that our current spending uh, patterns as a country and as a democracy are not sustainable. I think there are some valuable lessons to learn from the work of that commission. First, taking a very clear, defined, targeted objective as the foundation for all decision-making. In the case of the Bipartisan Policy Center Task Force, it was stabilizing federal debt at the then percent of federal GDP. And although the debt could grow, to derive a plan that would not have debt grow faster than GDP growth. Right. Makes sense. And then secondly, was a strong commitment to take a data-driven approach to the analysis. Good. This group, uh, not to sound promotional, but this group, to my knowledge, is the only bipartisan group that has developed unanimously a plan which, had it been implemented, would have accomplished that objective. It obviously hit the buzzsaw of Washington politics, (laughs) and sadly, only small elements of the plan have been implemented up to now, but I believe it is still a strong set of guidelines the country can and should follow relative to managing our debt and deficit. And and this sounds like a perfect example of what you were talking about before, Bob, where people with business knowledge uh, were able to bring that together with those uh, like the chairs of the committee who had extensive uh, public governance experience and find a workable uh, solution that would look different from what one would have in a traditional privately held business, but yet brought those skills to bear, correct? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it was a highly collaborative process, ran over almost a year. I mean, it required everyone, if you will, to leave their hat at the door yes, yes. and to try to focus on what was right for the country as a whole. But this uh, this group did just back just that, and I even today would commend that yes. report as a valuable uh, resource around this daunting issue. We will link it on our website so people can can read it. Zachary, you had a question. Yeah, so sort of about the uh, interaction between uh, government and business, how have and how have uh, businesses and what do you see businesses as their role as advocates, as advocating for certain issues, especially now as they're more and more expected to take stands on certain political issues that that uh, divide people and are very controversial? Great question. Yeah, good question. Uh, I mean, certainly historically in our democracy, 
and Jeremy, you're a political historian, could probably speak to this better than I, but certainly historically have seen businesses uh, probably over the past 200 years advocate public policy positions which enable their biz- their business objectives. Free trade being one example. Uh, free it. trade would be a very, very good example. Tax policy in some instances would be a good example. And I think that that is fair and proper if done within the uh, uh, rules and regulations for uh, asserting one's, one's views. Probably in the last several decades, we have seen, Zachary, an evolution of interest in corporate social responsibility yes. and uh, responsible corporate actions relative to broader domestic issues. Interesting. It, my under, undergraduate thesis was in 1971 was entitled Emerging Trends in U.S. Corporate Social Responsibility. You were ahead of the curve so even it then. <laughs> it, it has been around for a while, although I'd say even today I'm not struck that it is a mature evolution. And and it varies a fair amount by industry fec- sector, varies by company, but do see some very provocative and impressive actions. A number of private organizations are taking to try to uh, support the public good. I mean, I certainly cite my longtime firm Deloitte for some of the good work it does in that domain. Well, and one area I know you've worked on and, and enjoy talking about is uh, efforts in, in the third world and development. I know you spend a lot of time traveling uh, in this area, and um, you've worked a lot with the East-West Institute, of course, as we mentioned, that is filled with uh, both public and private sector um, wise men and women who spend a lot of time uh, advocating for economic development. Do you see that as, as, as part of corporate social responsibility? I think it can be at least for certain of the members. I, I mean, that involvement is one of the more exciting areas that I have the good fortune of being involved in and be glad to share a little bit about please, it. If, please, please. If, if you'd like. East-West Institute is a an NGO, approximately 35 years old, focused dogmatically on international conflict avoidance yes. and international conflict resolution. It is truly a global organization. The board is comprised of individuals from all over the world. Our offices are in New York, Brussels, and Moscow, and we have business leaders, investors, former government leaders, all actively involved to realize that mission. And uh, I'm, I'm honored to be part of it. Uh, really, two major threads to the work. And I know, Jeremy, we've spent a fair amount of time on some of these issues in the past together, and your contributions have been invaluable. But at the East-West Institute, we work to anticipate emerging issues that can lead to international conflict and develop thoughtful policy recommendations for international agreements. I'd cite uh, cybersecurity as probably a pretty good example of how we uh, got ahead of the curve on some of the international 
agreements that needed to be in place on that front. The uh, second area we focus, perhaps even more provocative, would be what's called Track 2 Diplomacy, which is business and nonprofit-led, behind-the-scenes, diplomatic support activities in the interest of building relations internationally, building trust levels internationally. Um, probably one, one of the initiatives of that nature I've had the opportunity to be involved in would be the Tri-Party Talk Series, where for the last decade annually we have gotten senior representatives of the China Communist Party, the U.S. Republican Party, and the U.S. Democratic Party together in one room for two two-day facilitated dialogue. That's great. And uh, are we going to agree on everything? Of course not. But does it build a level of relationship, level of understanding of where we agree and don't agree that hopefully has the effect of reducing the prospect for conflict, uh, I I find uh, just exceptionally meaningful to be part of. And and I, I think it's worth underlining how valuable it is to have these ongoing dialogues especially with societies where we often have differences uh, politically, uh, because those dialogues provide channels for communication and, in some cases, crisis avoidance, which I think, uh, as a historian, turns out to be one of the most important elements of an effective foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, just just to reinforce that, uh, we've also been hosting for some years military-to-military talks between retired admirals and generals from China and the U.S., up until we did that, a number of them would say they would not have even known who to call right. for what issue if a potential conflict was emerging. So just developing that foundational level of understanding, hopefully also. And, and Bob, if I might ask on that point, um, you know, in, in a moment when we're thinking back on, on the history of many d- difficult experiences between the U.S. and China and other societies, how do you, because I know you think deeply about this, how do you uh, make sure that these relationships are promoting positive um, developments between societies and not encouraging uh, bad behavior in other societies? Yeah, well, cer- certainly, at least relative to the activities of the East-West Institute, which I'm closest to, our activities are so integrally tied to the mission of conflict avoidance and conflict resolution that it would be hard to com- contemplate right, right. behaviors that would not be right. reinforcing of that. I mean, I think there are some... Uh, approaches and methods that tend to be reinforcing. It's certainly working well ahead of discussions to agree on agendas, to agree on what's inbounds and what's out of bounds. It is committing to behave in a forthright, honest, ethical manner. It is agreeing to put our hats at the door relative to whatever. Right country are special interest we would otherwise represent. And in many instances, it's also such discussions can be enhanced by placing some restrictions on external communication, yes. contemporaneous communications yes. about them. Yes. Kind and, of uh, keep, 
keep the discussion in the room. Right, right. And, and I was just going to say um, what I think is important for many to understand is that just as we presume that professional public representatives will operate with a code of ethics and morals, uh, you in the business community, the, the top professionals there have a very strict code of ethics and morals. And, and, and that's what, what allows productive discussions, even with those who uh, might otherwise try to take advantage of those discussions to promote bad behavior, that you would not allow that to be within bounds. No, I mean, absolutely. Zachary. Um, I, we talked a lot about... Um, the, the honor and ethics of business, but and also about what government can learn from business. But uh, what do you think business can learn from government? What is the role of you see of government regulation of business, especially when that honor and that ethics um, is isn't upheld by certain out, by certain actors in business? Well, as I observed earlier, I have seen some limitations of understanding at a detailed operational and policy level of each sector about the other may not be hitting your question exactly on point, Zachary, but I would certainly encourage business leaders to focus on and understand at a detail level the policies, rules, regulations that are in place vis-a-vis whatever industry sector they're operating in and would encourage business leaders, as many do, to get engaged in their communities, get engaged in the political process, whatever their political persuasions may be, and uh, do their part to contribute to the effective functioning of our democracy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, again, we're back to dialogue and, and, and coordination uh, in, in a way that right, was, was pioneered by some of the business leaders of the early 20th century that Zachary mentioned in his poem. Uh, Bob, uh, as you know, uh, we like to uh, close our podcast by talking about pathways forward, especially for young people. And, and as you and I have discussed, and, and you've also advised and mentored so many of my students, and you're a wonderful mentor. I'm going to keep bringing uh, mentors to you. And, and you know, I, I, I pay you so highly with maybe a lunch every once in a while for it. Um, but... Uh, uh, what What is the advice and guidance based on your experience that you would give to listeners out there who care deeply about public policy issues like, let's say, the environment or uh, inequality, but also at the same time uh, want to go into business in part because they want to be remunerated for their activities, uh, but also recognize the innovation that comes in the business sector. Many of my students, as you know, are interested in the startup world, but they're also deeply, deeply committed, as you are, to some of these public policy issues about equality and environmental sustainability. How would you advise them to go forward in their careers, bringing these two worlds together? Great question. Let me, well, don't want to be presumptuous with my advice, but let me distinguish some counsel to current students separately from some counsel to those who are already in the workforce, whether it's the public or private sector. Uh, I think for current students would make several recommendations. I think one would be to develop some basics, whatever one's major, whatever one's passion, develop some basic skills 
an understanding of areas such as technology, uh, management, accounting and financial management, which almost whatever you elect to do are foundational skills that will help you be more effective. Okay. I think for students, I would certainly encourage individuals to identify an issue they're passionate about, but beyond just being passionate, become an expert around the issue. Really understand the points of view out in market on the issue, understand the policy rules and regulations behind whatever the issue may be, and even in school, make yourself an expert on something. Sure, sure. And then I'd also encourage, probably obvious, but would encourage those in school to volunteer, get involved in their communities, get involved in worthy local nonprofits. I mean, it's a way to make a big difference early in one's career, a way to learn, but also I think we'll find is a lot of fun right. as well. Right, right. I think for those already in the workplace, I guess part of my counsel would be similar. I would certainly encourage those listening to seek out issues they are passionate about and really study and become an expert mm-hmm. on those mm-hmm. issues mm-hmm. beyond just the emotional aspects of, of the issues. Of course. I uh, would also encourage those already in the workplace, uh, as I earlier counseled students, to get involved in nonprofits, to do volunteer work, to try to do one's part to make a difference on issues that matter to ones individually. And then I guess reflecting back on an earlier observation I made, whether you're working in the public or private sectors, I'd encourage you to make a commitment to do more to understand how things work in the other sector. If one's in government, take some effort to understand how capital markets work, how business work, uh, how to read a balance sheet. Uh, And if if one's in business, uh, certainly take some effort, as I mentioned in passing earlier, to better understand the national and state policies and regulations that affect whatever sector you happen to be operating in. And to show respect for the other side, not to not to treat the other sector as the enemy. Absolutely. Right, which is too common in our dialogue today, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Zachary, um, you, you've been drawn in your political uh, activism to uh, figures uh, in the public sector and the private sector who are very committed to dealing with inequality and homelessness and racism and issues that I know you're very concerned about. Do, do you find um, what Bob is talking about here in his experiences and his advice, is this something that resonates with young people who have your political commitments? Well, I do think that there's a lot of... Um disenchantment with the idea of American business. And I think that's really because we've seen a, um, over the past like 10 years or so, we've seen a real, um, I think at least, at least outwardly, we've seen a real dissatisfaction with the way that, um, that, uh, large businesses have conducted themselves. And I think that's a real problem. And I, I do think that part of the way that's solved is what we talked about earlier with businesses taking more of a social responsibility and reaching out and talking about why it's important what they do, but also um, being responsible to, for their communities and working in their communities. And I think that 
that's something that um, businesses need to work on. But I also think that there's still a large, there are a large number of students who see business and entrepreneurship as an opportunity, especially when it comes to things like technology and things like that. Right, and that that could be harnessed uh, for the public good. Bob, I, I think you have done such a great job, obviously in your career, but in the short time we've been able to talk this morning, uh, really in uh, laying out uh, some of the ways in which uh, the business community and the public sector community can really work together. And I think uh, encouraging all of us to think about not demonizing, but instead better understanding and, and collaborating. And uh, that has always been essential to our history, and it will be essential to the the future growth of our democracy. So thank you, Bob, for sharing your time with us and insights. Pleasure to spend time with both of you and uh, exciting topic. Absolutely. Zachary, thank you, as always, for your poem. Thank you for listening to our episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.